Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Now, Leon Taylor is also well-known, we all know, for their tailor-made clothes, but you also know they're ready for their custom-made and ready-made clothing as well. That's right, clothes that are right there on the rack that you can buy and pick up, and they'll make the alterations included in the price. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. And of course, then you know, if they want something tailor-made specifically just for you, then they can do it. So whether it's tailor-made, whether it's ready-made, or whether it's custom-made, it is for you and you specifically. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you and happy to take care of you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware. In downtown Indianapolis. Well, with the election on Tuesday, we figured we'd talk to one of our favorite political analysts, uh, my colleague at the University of Indianapolis, Dr. Laura Wilson, associate professor of political science in the School of Political Science and Government. Uh, so, Laura, my dear, uh, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for being with us. We do appreciate it as always. I always enjoy being here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, overall, uh, what are your thoughts on what's going to happen on Tuesday? Yeah, so this is an unusual election. And I know there's a, a predilection for political analysts to say that, right? The, all elections are special to us, just like all children are special to their mothers. But this one in particular, the dynamics are fascinating because on one hand, I think Republicans will do very well. And if I was going to put a pinpoint on which party will do better, probably the Republican Party, um, but not as much as they would have done pre-Dobbs versus Jackson decision, the Supreme Court change in policy on abortion. And that's where Democrats have an opportunity, a, a ray of sunlight that before that decision really looked like it was going to be a very bleak, very crushing congressional midterm. In terms of the landscape, we're likely to still have unified government at the state level. Of course, the governor's not up for election this year. That'll be two years from now. But with a Republican governor, um, very likely to still see supermajorities in the House and the Senate in favor of Republicans at the state level. The change in terms of partisanship could happen in the House at the federal level. And based on those races, I'm inclined to think that it will go in favor of Republicans. Um, there are also some really exciting Senate races. Democrats might be able to hold on, but I wouldn't sleep on Pennsylvania, on Florida, on Georgia. There's some that are very close and also notably incredibly expensive for a congressional primary. Uh, it's interesting because a lot of folks have been talking about uh, originally uh, it was going to be a red wave. Uh, then we heard a blue wave. Now we're hearing a red wave again. I tend to th yeah. think, my dear, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. It's like swimming in the ocean. It's lots of cross currents. It just depends on which cross current you end up in. There are, there are. And you know what we used to say, and I know you and I like talking about this, but, you know, it's, it's the day of the election. That's always the challenge with polling. And I love polling, and I stand by polling, and I think polling is really important. But, of course, polling is the who do you like right now. It's not who do you like on November 8th. The new challenge we have as you're talking about those cross currents and waves is that many people have already voted. And with early voting and with the utilization of absentee voting, with so many people voting before November 8th, we can try to analyze and see who's in line with me at the polls on early voting, um, who's already cast their ballot. And knowing that with that available so many weeks before the election, it's not just what happens on any given first or second Tuesday of November that matters. There's it's a, it's a season of elections, not just simply that one individual election day. And it's interesting, too, because you talk about uh, early voting uh, here, not only in Indiana, but across the country. Like we joke and say, it's no longer uh, election day. It's more like election month, uh, so to speak. But it also means lots of folks have already cast their ballots early. And uh, NBC News did an interesting analysis. I have to send you the link. Uh, they did a sort of a state by state as to who's voted already. And here in Indiana, uh, so far, uh, 
with, with respect to early voting, uh, party registration, 43%, 43% Democrats, Republicans, but mail-in and early person votes cast, Republicans 49, uh, Democrats 40. And there's a lot of that going on across the country. For example, uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, Democrats have really voted like almost like 70 to 30 Republicans. Uh, can we take any way from these sort of early voting numbers, or should we just wait until uh, Election Day? say it would show, at least in terms of utilizing the early voting option, that Republicans are more energized, engaged, enraged, whatever it might be, they are using it. I, I don't know that they, we extrapolate that to the larger whole. It could be that Democrats are more inclined to vote the election day. And I do know friends of all partisanships and ideologies that feels like Christmas. You know, you got to do it on the actual day. That's just really how it is. Um, I, what I think is interesting, though, is if you look at those numbers and you see you know, a higher number of Republicans using early voting as an option, that affords a lot more to the Republican Party. So they know in case there was a snafu, we're out of October at this point, but maybe an early November surprise, uh, it's going to hurt them less because they already have their voters casting their ballots. They've already made those decisions. And I also heard this from someone working in the party once that I found really interesting, but they actually talked about how they prefer it in a way because you're narrowing down the number of people you have to reach. So once someone's cast their ballot, they're done. They either voted for you or against you, but they've already voted. You aren't changing their minds in a way that's going to matter meaningfully for the outcome of the election. And so you, you have a smaller pool by the time that actual election day comes around. And that's changing the way candidates and campaigns really approach the actual election itself. Our guest in the room today is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, my colleague at the University of Annapolis, associate professor of political science as we get ready uh, for the big E-Day, Election Day. Uh, Dr. Laura, uh, when it comes to uh, the House and the Senate, or the national, we'll get to Indiana uh, in just a bit. When it comes to the, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, uh, I see Republicans uh, possibly picking up the House representatives. I uh, don't see them necessarily getting the Senate. What, what are your thoughts? That would be my overall perspective, too. And I think the tricky thing with any of those kind of the larger scale predictions is you're trying to make a, an, assertment, um, an assertion based on 435 seats that are up for grabs. Now, we know there are many, and as you said, we'll talk about Indiana in here a second, that we feel pretty strongly the incumbent or at least the incumbent party. We know which way they're going to go. But for those that are toss-ups, this is where that wave matters. So when folks say, is it going to be a good election for this party or a bad election for that party? Right? You see like those national trends really matter in those particular races. The Senate is fascinating because these are incredibly expensive races, as I mentioned. And really, the, the Senate has the smallest lightest, tiniest majority of Democrats with the 50-50 having Vice President Kamala Harris as that tie-breaking vote. I don't see it flipping per se, but anytime you're able to have a competitive race for the political party, even even a loss, quite frankly, can be seen as a victory because it's not a victory now, but those races are up you know, every six years for that particular seat and every other election cycle otherwise. Um, I, I think that it shows the opportunity in terms of the end game, the long game, beyond just this November and looking ahead to the future. And also, I think it's interesting the fact that, that so many close races are tied. It always kind of makes you wonder, does it, benefit, does it benefit Republicans or Democrats? Because once again, this is supposed to be the big red wave and uh, inflation was supposed to be the big, inflation gas prices. It's supposed to be the big issue. Uh, but Democrats are still kind of holding on, particularly in some of those key states, for example, Wisconsin uh, and Pennsylvania. Uh, so is it like baseball, a tie goes to the runner? and who's the runner? <laughs> well, 
Uh, you know, I'm more of a football person, so I really don't know <laughs> in this particular case. But, but I, I think you're right. Like, that's, that is what we're looking at. It's all those really close ones, the question of the tie, um, the question of if one race goes one direction but another goes to opposite. Of course it matters for that state, but the larger aggregate of who's in control of what branch really does matter. And I would go back to, as we're talking, likely the House turning in favor of Republicans, um, potentially the Democrats holding on to the Senate. That turn, just of one institution, while it's not both um, both houses of Congress for the Republicans, that would be key because that's going to split up unified government that the Democrats presently are enjoying at the federal level and make it divided government. That's going to make, uh, it's going to change policy, certainly. It's going to make the process quite a bit different. And I, th- I think the Republicans would agree that even just flipping one house would be critical for them in terms of success. Uh, in, in terms of divided government, normally uh, I tend to like divided government because well, that means both sides have to compromise. But in this sort of you know, political polarization, uh, is divided government necessarily a good thing? It, 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 opinion is shockingly divided. <laughs> on one hand, uh, we, we say, like, you don't see necessarily any more legislative gridlock uh, in divided government than you do in unified government. And I could point to lots of good examples, I know you could as well, of times where you've had Republicans all in charge or Democrats all in charge, and they still couldn't pass things through in the same way because, shockingly, these are the coalitions, right? They're not every Republican feels the same way on every issue, nor does every Democrat. And when you are the party in power, you enjoy a little bit of leeway, and you have the ability to defect to some degree. I, I think... The challenge, generally, I like divided government, too, because I think it tries to force a compromise. But what we've seen in recent election cycles and the sessions, the subsequent sessions where they're involved in policy is the option of either compromise. The other option is you don't and nothing gets passed. It seems increasingly we land on that second option of nothing gets passed. And that is certainly frustrating for constituents. It's frustrating for voters. I, I think, quite frankly, it's probably very frustrating for the parties and the office holders as well. Our guest on the program today is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson. Dr. Laura is uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Annapolis. We both teach in the same institution, so we're happy to have her on the program today as we get ready for uh, Tuesday's election day. Uh, Dr. Laura, I want to change gears, uh, head towards Indiana. Uh, let's start with the U.S. Senate race. You've got Todd Young, uh, Tom McDermott. Uh, the polling that we did, also McDermott campaign did, showed that the race was uh, only just a couple points uh, away from each other. Uh, but I still expect Todd Young to possibly pull out a victory on this one. I I do suspect that that's going to happen, and and I'd say for a couple of reasons. Obviously, incumbency advantage is valuable in any race. Here, Todd Young enjoys a significant war chest in terms of funding, and that can help make up for any difference for voters. You know, if you're able to help persuade them in any way, having money really does matter in elections. I think he he still has tremendous name recognition relative to his competitor, um, and, and I think as well when you think you don't get to pick when you go up for election, right? If you're a six-year term, you are every six years. But I think this one advantages young because coming after two years serving under a Democratic president and a Democratic-controlled Congress, it puts you in a really good position to say, look, these are the things that I've been fighting against. You need to reelect me because we haven't been able to do that given this particular political climate. It'd be different if he had had 
you know, all years of Republican control. And then people say, well, what about these things and what about those things? Well, we're still working on those. I, I think the political dynamics of the race as a whole certainly advantages them. And the money, I will tell you, it does not hurt. Uh also, I think, too, interesting, uh, particularly in the U.S. Senate race, uh, you've had Tom McDermott uh, basically almost sort of uh, go sort of Trump light, so to speak, uh, on a couple of things, on a couple of issues. Uh, he tried the, the marijuana uh, situation to, to get votes there. Yeah. Uh, his podcast was late, recently in the news. He uh, used some profane language. He later apologized. Uh, is is the is uh, what are literally Tom McDermott's chances, do you think, going forward? Well, like I said, with just a couple of days left. Yeah, well, for this race, it's still going to be very hard. Um, Indiana is a red state. Uh, this election cycle seems to be benefiting Republicans. He'll certainly do his very best as a Democrat. Abortion is a major issue, so if you're able to mobilize voters based on that. I, I think longer term, though, he's displayed himself as a competitive uh charismatic, maybe some would say a little outrageous, but certainly a notable Democratic candidate. And that's a huge win for the Democrats, even if this race were close and seen a slighter, a smaller margin of victory for the Republicans compared to what has been in the past. I think those are the little victories that aren't technically victories, but they do signify a successful candidate. Perhaps it was the wrong time. Maybe it was the wrong race. Maybe it was the wrong opposition. There are a lot of different things we can analyze post-mortem. But in terms of the candidate themselves that can tell you something about future opportunities, potential uh, in terms of stealing, but also in other avenues. I, I think that might be something that people would look at for McDermott. Uh, changing gears a little bit, uh, let's go to the uh, other uh, interesting race uh, here in Indiana is the Secretary of State's race. Uh Destiny Morales had Destiny Destiny Wells has been Destiny Morales. Well, I'm getting my mind mixed up here. Destiny Wells has been very competitive, uh, either leading leading a couple of polls by two points, uh, four points, and actually uh, outraced Diego uh, in fundraising and got is getting help from Pete Buttigieg's campaign. Diego Morales has had all his issues. He was on the Tony Katz show saying there was no Secretary of State debate. I don't know where you were that Sunday night. I watched, but okay, fine, <laughs> whatever. Uh, what do you see happening there? Yeah, so that one is a fascinating race. And I would say, if you're like, what is the one you're really looking at? For me in Indiana, that is it. And there are a couple of nationals that I'm really focused on, too. Uh, but this is typically an innocuous position at the state level. I will say I enjoy elections, so I care very deeply about the Secretary of State. But most Hoosiers wouldn't necessarily know what that position does, who the incumbent office holder is, you know, why this position would matter, and how the outcome would be very different between these two candidates. Because this race has garnered a lot of attention, arguably because uh, Diego Morales is a more controversial candidate, I'd also say um, that Destiny Scott Wells is a another a strong contender. Because of that, people are focused a lot more here. And I think, again, this is going to be one that is incredibly competitive. I would suspect it's a close race. And whomever ekes out the victory, there's going to be something to learn there for the candidate that ultimately loses. I I think this one is one that we will look at and say, okay, because of these certain factors, because of these things that happened, we can understand that that led to the particular outcome. Uh, But I will tell you, I just think it's great that people are looking more at the statewide executive offices. Most of the time, other than governor, people don't know 
know and they don't care. And that is definitely different this election cycle. Also, I think what will be crucial in that Secretary of State's race, <clears throat> excuse me, is what do those uh, suburban Republican women do in Carmel, Fisher, Zionsville, you know, Avon, Plainfield, uh, to, to, to less degree, to less degree, Greenwood and Greenfield, because those, I think those will make the difference in the Secretary of State's race. Those 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 Republican yeah. women, sort of outside of 465, but south of 32, uh, west of Route 9, east of 267, and north of 135. Absolutely. And I, th- I think that is the key electorate in this particular race. And we've seen, especially the suburban areas, um, and, and not just women in this case, but those voters play an increasingly large role in determining the outcome. So I think you're right. That demographic in particular, uh, as the wind blows for them, I think so too likely will the outcome for this race. Uh, we got just a couple minutes left here. Our guest in the program today, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is uh, Dr. Laura Wilson, uh, my colleague at the University of Indianapolis, uh, teaches in the School of Political science. Uh, obviously, uh, the first district is, uh, is is not necessarily in our immediate viewing area, but it's gotten garnered a lot of attention, a lot of a national attention. Uh, Jennifer Ruth Green has been uh, fundraising like crazy. Frank Mervan has been been sort of uh, touting his uh, record. What do you see happening in the first district? Well, the fact that this one's competitive is surprising on all levels. Now, Frank Mervan is a one-term Congress uh, congressional representative, and so that's the time they're most vulnerable. So he's the incumbent, but the incumbent who's only served for two years, unlike his predecessor, Pete Pesklowski, who had literally been in office as long as I've been alive. So, you know, this is typically a district that is seen as being pretty solidly blue, and it had been redrawn slightly. The fact that Jennifer Ruth Green is as competitive as she is, and then there's also been some controversies coming out within the last month of this race in particular, it tells you the potential for a flip in favor of Republicans in this area. And if it if that were to happen, right, if this if this seat flips, this seat has been blue for literally decades, like going back to, I believe, 1928 was the last time that this particular district would have voted in favor of a Republican. That, that could talk about changing demographics. That could talk about the particular potential for a red wave that we expect we might see. That could also be indicative of the individual candidates. I think that one is going to be a lot harder to disseminate why something would have happened necessarily, but... It would be a major victory for Republicans and a, a very unfortunate loss, um, a major one as well for Democrats. And in, in considering these congressional races, most of the time in Indiana, our congressional races are competitive in the primary. And that more or less decides who's going to win in the general because they are so one-sided. The fact that this one's competitive at all tells you something's going on, something's different here in this race. All right. Well, our guest on the program today has been our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Indianapolis. We both teach together uh, in the department. Uh, Laura, as always, thank you very much for being with us. And don't be surprised if I give you a call Tuesday evening once we figure out what the heck is going on in the, in the, in the state and in this country. I, I look forward to the phone call. I hope that you do. And as always, thank you for having me on the show, Abdul. I appreciate it. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.